0: One of the darkest chapters in all of Jewish history was the expulsion of the Jews from Spain in 1492. In this class, we look at the history and background of the expulsion, and we talk about some of the lessons we can all learn from this most difficult of stories. As always, please like and share this podcast, and if if you have any questions, please leave us a comment. Welcome to the Jewish History Podcast. I'm Rabbi Nahum Meth. Our topic for this morning will very briefly talk about one of the darkest chapters in Jewish history, the Spanish expulsion inquisition. If you really go through Jewish history from the time of the second, the, the destruction of the Second Temple, the year 70, ballpark of the Common Era, through the Holocaust, so almost 2,000 years of Jewish history. Uh, the darkest period in the middle is going to be probably the, Ju- the experiences of the Jews in Spain, the Gerash Safarad, the expulsion of Spain, 1492, as well as the pogroms of 1648-1649 that Ashkenazic Jewry would face- be faced with. But this is perhaps the darkest period in that 2,000-year window. As an aside, a lot of the information for, for today's class, and if someone's really, the, the topic of the Spanish expulsion is is huge. It's not a, certainly not a 30 minute class. Um, people have wrote many a dissertation on the topic. I direct you to the great works of Bitzalel Milikovsky, who you've never heard of, but you've heard of him in his more common name, is bitzael Netanyahu, that's Bibi's father, who is really one of the preeminent scholars on the... uh, He changed his name at some point. Um, He's really one of the leading scholars, uh, at least in contemporary times, certainly on the Spanish Inquisition and Expulsion. He wrote probably the definitive biography on Don Isaac of Barbonell, who we'll hopefully touch on a little bit later, so I direct you there. To begin the story, we need to get the context of what Jewish life in Spain uh, was like, where did it come from, and, and what happened. And maybe just sort of as, as a background, it's really just helpful for really understanding all of medieval history, really up to contemporary times, really up to the, almost to the 1900s. Um, and it's relevant for this discussion, but it's really relevant in, in general. So it's a little bit of as an, as an aside. It's really important to understand the following two ideas. Whenever you deal with uh, large sweeps of history uh, up until the 1900s. We like to think of countries, Spain, Germany, France, as in modern times. We have, we have these countries, the United States, Canada. The reality is, up until very recently, although you did have countries, Spain, France, Germany, things like that, the king, the leader of those countries, usually was not the most dominant force in daily life. Think about it. If you're living in the year... 711, which we're going to see is an important year in Jewish history, you know, there's no railroad, there are no cars, there's no airplanes, there's no telegraph, there's no Twitter, there's no Facebook. Communication, transportation is really, really difficult. So if you're the king of Spain, what exactly does that mean? How is someone 100 miles away from you listening to your authority? And the answer is, and it's an important to understand that throughout history, particularly in Europe, although you had kings of these large areas, they generally speaking were not that influential. Who was more influential? It was the governor of the local province. If you recall from your AP European History, and I thank Mrs. Wolfe from my AP you know, European History, she's still teaching, thank you Mrs. Wolf. <laughs> Um, If you remember your AP European history, the Holy Roman Empire, right? Does everyone remember the Holy Roman Empire? It wasn't holy, it wasn't Roman, and it wasn't an empire, right? Why wasn't it an empire? The the German states were these um, a million little teeny little regions. Officially, there was a Holy Roman Empire. There was a Holy Roman Emperor. Practically, they typically had no power. Their power was in the local areas, the local provinces. And it wouldn't be, you know, Otto von Bismarck doesn't consolidate, you know, Germany, what, what is 1870? It's pretty late on till Germany actually becomes a country. So we have to think of countries, Spain is going to be the topic of our conversation. You have to think of it in those terms. There was officially a figurehead, a ruler, a king. Generally speaking, power came more on the local provincial level. Does that make sense? Point number two is that often annoyed the king when they realized they didn't have power because the reality is it was the people under them, the governors of the local provinces that really had all the power. And every now and again, the fellow at the top, the king or queen, would get really annoyed about the fact that realistically speaking, their power was unconsolidated. And every now and again, there would be these spasms where the king, the queen, would try to consolidate their power under these local provincial governors, and that usually led to bloodshed. Because oftentimes the provincial leader wasn't interested in just listening to whatever the king or queen said. And that would often create tension. Oftentimes the king or queen would think that the provincial governor was undermining their power. So it would often have them executed. Whenever that happened, as a general rule, not a total rule, but as a general rule, whenever these kinds of you know, monarchs trying to consolidate power from the local provincial leaders, that often led to, to bloodshed, and it was never good for the Jews. It was never a good experience for the Jews, because the Jews, throughout the experience in Europe, whether it be under, you know, in Spain, in Germany, in France, different areas if they would try to find some kind of accommodation to live a peaceful life it typically was under the local provincial ruler and if they were able to come up with some kind of consul- some kind of accommodation some kind of temporary accommodation that would be great but when the king the higher up would try to blow up and consolidate power it was usually a problem for the jews and that is going to be the experience of the jews and the expulsion in 1492 how did the Jews get to Spain so it's actually remarkable if you look in the in the verse in Ovadia one of the prophets Ovadia is talking about messianic times and he talks about how in messianic times now again he's writing before the, during the times of the first temple so this is not even during the times of the second temple this is the times of the first temple it's about the midway point of the first temple and he goes ahead and he writes about Messian. It's already the beginning of the end of the, of the first temple. And he talks about a future redemption. And what's going to happen during the times of that future redemption? Talks about the ingathering of the exiles. Many of the communities that have already been scattered, or that will be scattered in coming dates, don't worry, they're going to eventually make their way back to Israel. And he says, V'golos hachel hazel of ne'israel... Asher Kenanim, this this Gullus, this great Diaspora, the children of Israel, who are among the Canaanites, and they're also Ad Sarafas, Ad Sarfas, what's Sarphas? France. The Gullus Yerushalayim Asher bis And the exile of Jerusalem, that's in Sparad. Where is Sparad? Spain. Now is this verse referring really to France and Spain? So many of the commentaries say no, these are just name you know place names of places in Canaanite regions. And that's how many of the commentaries learn. However, Rashi is unambiguous. He says, no. Tsarfas, he says, França, Belaz. França, in old French. Svard Tirgamionasan, Aspamia. Svard is Aspamia, which is Spain. Which implies that there were Jews living in France and Spain during the First Temple Era. So that's thousands of years ago, which is pretty remarkable. So there's definitely, according to Rashi, and according to others, Rabbi Abarbanel also argues, rivet as well, that there were Jews already settling in Spain, which is remarkable during the time of the first Temple era, which is, you know, at least the year 560 you know, something before the Common Era. So that's a long, long time ago. Um Rabbi Abarbanel, who I referred to, he points out, you know, one of the city of Toledo, you ever heard of Toledo? What's the derivation of the name Toledo, he argues Toledo comes from the Hebrew Hebrew word tiltul, which means to to move or to wander, on account of the, of the Jews who wandered there from Jerusalem. So it goes back quite a long time. Uh, we definitely have reference of the Jews in in Spain during the Second Temple era, that's certainly clear. That said, the Jewish community of Spain was small. It wasn't robust, it was not thriving. The sectors of Judaism, during the first temple, second temple, clearly in, in Israel, and then in Babylonia, by the year 306, Spain comes under the conquest of the Christians. Christianity is now taking over Europe, and the year 306 is a turning point. Spain comes under the control of the Roman Empire. Still, the Jewish population is still very small, but it's growing. Now, under the Christian rule, Christians is a general rule... Uh, are intolerant of Jews. That has been the virtually unqualified history of, of the Jewish experience in Christendom, is it's never good, it's always bad. So while there were Jews in Spain, beginning the year 306, under Christian rule, it was never hospitable, and there was always regularly uh, implemented anti-Semitic decrees, and the Jewish community was not robust, it was not big. That all changes in the year 711. In the 600s, we know we read about, the, we know about the, the growth, the birth of, the, of Islam. And that becomes a dominating force, certainly in the Mediterranean basin. And the Islamic and Arabic tribes in North Africa really begin uh, to start dominating the sea. And in the year 711, uh, I think it was a... a, a I don't. Let me check my notes. Did they, have those they back then? beg your pardon. Did they have those back then? Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they became they came under the under the rule of Tariq Ibn Ziyad. I forget which tribe he was either a Tugar or a, a Berber. I don't remember or one of the more one of the North African tribes. Um, an Islamic ruler. He comes and he and he conquers Spain from the Christians, driving the the Christians virtually completely out of Spain. Not totally, but at least to no, very much the north of the Iberian Peninsula, and the Muslims are in control. Now again, it's not that you have one king ruling over all of Spain. Even when it comes to Muslim rule, you have you know the head caliph or whomever it may be, but again, every city, every local province really had their own flavor and their own characteristics. And it was under, beginning of the year 711 is where we have the golden era of spain of spanish jewry and the, the urban legend goes well from right around the year 700 to the year 1500 is the you know 800 years the golden era of jewish spain where the jews thrive everything was great they rolled they they rose to financial prominence political prominence it was kind of like the united states today that's where the jews were like during that 800 years you know that's the urban legend it's not quite true Although during parts of this 800 year, uh, roughly ballpark, 800 years that the Jews lived in Spain, there were periods of tranquility, periods of prosperity, certainly relative to the Ashkenazic experience, certainly relative to other areas of Jewish settlements. We should not think that the Jews had it perfect. If you want to get a good glimpse of what life was like under Islamic rule, I certainly recommend, it's, it's in my opinion, the best book, at least that I've read. Um, It's called In the House of Ishmael. It's a great book by Sir Martin Gilbert. It's a fantastic book if you want to get a sense of what Jewish life, the history of Jewish life under Islamic rule and what it was like. I certainly recommend that book. It's fantastic. It's not big either, so it's a fairly easy read. He points out that as a general rule, Jewish life under Islamic rule, as compared to under Christian rule, Jewish life was the highs were not as high and the lows were not as low. That, those are his words, and it's a pretty good description. You know, it's interesting, we think of... You know, today in 2021, like who's giving us more problems, the Christians or the, or the Muslims? So I think most people would say, well, the Muslims, look at Iran, look at Syria, look at all the trouble we've had over the last, you know, since 1948, and everyone will go ahead and and look, the Muslim rule has really been giving us the heartache. And the reality is that that might be true. Historically speaking, over the last 1500 years, life has been far more pleasant for Jews under Islamic rule than under Christian rule. The reason for that is an idea we've spoken about in other classes, we'll, re, we'll just review it here again, is a principle called DIMI, D-H-I-M-M-I. DIMI, it's an Islamic theological notion. It's very important. I, I argue, you know, everyone, every, you know, new administration that comes into office, everyone wants to solve, we're going to solve Middle East, you know, Middle East conflict. You know, good luck. And I the problem with Middle Eastern conflict today, you know, there are racial tensions, there are religious tensions, there are political tensions, and, and I think what m- many fail to recognize is that there are theological tensions as well. And there are many layers, obviously, I don't mean to oversimplify things on any level, but it's critical to understand the concept of Dimi. What does Dimi mean? When Muhammad rose to power, he had tried in the, in the Arabian Peninsula, And he tried converting everyone, all the the Arab tribes. And he also tried converting many of the Jewish tribes. At a certain point, Muhammad was a smart guy. He was not a dope. He realized that he was not going to be successful. He realized that many of the Jews were just not interested in converting. So Muhammad and the subsequent, after he died, his father, his second father-in-law, who would be the the second caliph or whatever they refer to, you know, instituted a concept called Dimi. Dimmi is a theological concept that goes like this. You know, we tend to think that in Islam, you're either a Muslim or you're an infidel. And if you're an infidel, we need to kill you, right? It's actually, I mean, that's true, but there is a third category called a Dimi. A Dimi is someone who is a person of the book. As a general rule, Jews and Christians are dhimmis. Muhammad and again, his father-in-law, Omar, allowed... For people of the book, Jews and Christians, to live, they don't need to be killed, they could live under Islamic rule, peacefully. The concept of Dimi was, you can live under Islamic rule, however you had to understand your place. Which meant, you had to understand, you were officially a second class citizen. There were many things, many laws that were instituted, so that you would be reminded of the fact that you were a second class class citizen. So we think of like the Nazis were the ones who invented the yellow star. Right? They did not make that up. That comes from Dimi. That comes from ancient Islamic rules where if you were Jewish, you were required to wear at certain points certain, color, certain colored clothing, certain colored shoes. You were prohibited in acting. You couldn't ride on... Again, different, every different locale had different laws. You couldn't ride on horses. You could only ride on donkeys. Even when you did ride on donkeys, it had to be side-saddled. You couldn't even use a saddle. It had to be bareback. It was deliberately designed for two things. So that A, to easily identify who's a Jew... And number two, much like the Nazis, deliberately designed to humiliate the Jews. So the Jews were clearly understood. You were a second-class citizen. If you ever go to places like Spain or any um, ancient Jewish uh, area that was under Islamic rule, and you try to look at the ancient synagogues, you will note they are not these beautiful, ornate buildings. They are very simple and very plain. That was part of the Dimi rule. If you wanted to have a synagogue, you know, they had to be, if you wanted to build a new synagogue, it had to be under very strict parameters. It had to be small. It had to be very simple. It couldn't be ornate because you were second class. It couldn't outclass, you know, the mosque in the area. You were a Dimi. You had to pay what was called the jizya tax. Every Jewish community, every Jewish individual had to pay a jizya, which was a special tax. If you were Jewish, you had to pay it. Again, deliberately designed. So the Jews would know their place. As a general rule, if the Jews were comfortable with Dimi, as recognizing themselves as Dimi, they lived peacefully amongst the Arabs, amongst the Muslims. Now, every now and again, you would have a tribe of Arabs that weren't so comfortable with Dibi and they, with the Dimi status, and they would be much more intolerant, and they would want to kill all the Jews. But that was rare, Typically, you know, it was kind of on again, off again, but generally speaking, there was more tolerance than intolerance historically, although again, it wasn't 100%. And that's why I believe it's very difficult for, you know, when we talk about Middle East peace today, we have to realize, again, we're talking about political problems, theological problems, racial, ethnic, but you have to also understand for Arabs, having a Jewish country where the Jews you know, have their own independent state, we have our own flag, we sing our own national anthem, we send athletes to the Olympics, that violates the principle of, of Dimi. In other words, it's not just you know, a racial, ethnic, political problem. The fact that there's a state of Israel, you know, and not only are we equal to the Arab states, we're actually in most areas you know, more successful than the, the surrounding Arab countries, that goes against theological notions. So it's it's a much deeper problem than oh let's get everyone to just love one another to realize there's actually a theological tension the state acknowledging why do Arabs have Arab countries have such a hard time recognizing the state of Israel part of it is is, is this undercurrent of dimi. In any event, beginning in the year seven eleven, the Arabs come to you know they they knock the Christians out of the Iberian Peninsula the Arab tribes really become the the, the powerful and dominant forces in Spain. And the Jews begin to thrive, and it would take maybe another 150, 200 years before the great Talmudic scholars would emerge in Spain, but over time, beginning of the year 900 or so, you have the beginning of, you know, the great Jewish leaders, the rabbis started coming to Spain, and Spain really begins to flourish as the center of Jewish life. You have great Jewish theologians, great Jewish scholars, great Jewish Talmudic thinkers, uh, brilliant ra- rabbis like Riff, Rabbeinu Alfasi, who's really from northern northern uh, Africa, but he makes his way into into Spain, Menachem Saruk, Dunash ben Labrat, we have Ramban, Ridva, Rashbar, Rabbeinu Yonah, Ibn Ezra, we, the names go on, if you look at like the... The, the, the works of the Rishonim, the early commentaries in the, on both on the, on the Chumash, on the Torah, as well on the Talmud, it's a who's who of Spanish Jewry. And it really was a golden age in certain sense. They prospered, they flourished economically, philosophically, economically, and Talmudically. For a couple hundred years, Jews really did rise to prominence. Clearly, one of, you know, the, the light of Spanish Jewry would be Rabbi Moshe Maimonides, who we've spoken of in great detail. You know These towering figures, I always like to highlight one example just to get a sense of what Jewish life was like. There's one rabbi named Shmuel Nagri- Nagrila. Shmuel Nagrila, who's known more at, um, in, in Jewish circles as Shmuel Hanagid. What does Nagid mean? Anyone? Nagid? A Nagid is like a, a viceroy. If you open up any standard edition of the Talmud, any standard, the standard Vilna edition, you will find in the first tractate, the first book is Tractate Brachos. And you will find an introduction to the Talmud, the Mavoha Talmud, the introduction to the Talmud by Shmuel Hanagid. He, and, it's in, and I always say, they don't let anyone into the Talmud. You know what I mean? If I write a book, you know, my comment, I'm going to write an introduction to the Talmud. They're not going to publish it. I mean, they're probably not going to let it into the book. To get into the book means it's a scholarly work that's been universally accepted for its scholarship, for its brilliance, for its relevance. And Shmuel HaNagid writes this introductory work to the Talmud, and it's in any standard edition. You'll find the Mavol Talmud, the introduction of the Talmud by Shmuel HaNagid, by Shmuel Nargila, Nagrila. Who was Shmuel Nagrila? So yes, he was a pulpit rabbi at points. But he was also the... An advisor, as we talked about, the little provinces. So he was in the province of Cordova. He started off as a, actually as a shopkeeper in Cordova, but then he ends up becoming. When civil war breaks out, he ends up. Um, no, it's in Granada. Pardon me, in the Granada. The viceroy of the 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 governor of Granada relies on this fellow. He's a smart fellow, and he begins advising him, and he becomes his most trusted power and most trusted. Um, the most trusted advisor when the king of spain king habus and then king badis succeeds you know ends up becoming the ruler and he right he gets into a fight with the local provincial guy he ends up finding this shmuel hanagid who ends up functionally becoming the secretary of war for all of spain could you imagine that for a moment I tell you that, you know, Rabbi Ketanik, aside from being the rabbi and, you know, his brilliance and his scholarship, oh, but... <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> he's also the secretary of, he's secretary of defense. And not only that, when, when they got into a lot of scuffles with, you know, warring tribes, they decided to make him the lieutenant general of the army, and he leads <laughs> the army into battle. And that's exactly what happened to, to, to Shmuel Anage. He was the first that's the secretary of defense. He ends up actually being the general of the army. And he publishes a It's just a remarkable thing. This would be un, unheard of, impossible in Ashkenazic life. This was only possible under Muslim rule, where again, you know, he rises to prominence, but again, we shouldn't think that he was an equal. He still was a Dimi, but you see it's a good insight that in certain circumstances, under certain flavors, and in certain times, even a Dimi could rise to tremendous prominence. But as I mentioned, the, the different Arabic tribes were not quite as hospitable. And in the late 12th century, the beginning of the 13th century, which was, was a very difficult century for all of, all of Europe, and the Jews in particular, in a, a different Arabic tribe, uh, Islamic tribe, comes to power in Spain. It's the Almohad family. And they're not quite as hospitable <clears throat> to the Jews. And the Almohads, they're not so comfortable with Dimi, and they... You know this. I guess if Shmuel Hanagid is the, kind of the high watermark of Jewish success in Spain, it would be downhill from there. The Almohads take over in the early, early you know, year 1200. I think they, they really are in charge of most of Spain by the year 1250. And it's under the Almohads things really begin to deteriorate. And again, breaking this illusion of the golden years of of Spain, everything was great. You know, by the year 1200, even under Islamic rule, life was really really difficult. We so mentioned one of the most, the most prominent Spartic personality is Rabbi Moshe Maimonides, Rambam. Right? Where does Rambam live most of his life? You know, he's in Egypt, in Fustat. He's the, the, the physician to the, you know, to the whoever the king. Why is he in Fustat? Why is he in Egypt? Wasn't he born in Spain? Yes, but the Almohads basically banished him, and he had to run for his life. So, you see already a deterioration of Jewish life under the Almohads. Beginning in the early 1200s, the Christians who have been kicked out since the year 711, it's really part, if you think about it, the Crusades. What was the whole episode of the Crusades about? It was a reconquest of major places in Europe, and really the Holy Land. Where the Christians wanted to reconquest these significant places and and reconquest them from Islamic rule, well, part of that was to reconquest Spain as well, and the Christians really beginning in the in the early thir- the beginning of the thirteenth century really begin to drive out to drive out the um, the, the the Muslims from ro- from prominence in uh, in the Iberian Peninsula by the year twelve fifty they're essentially in full control of the Iberian most. Most of the Iberian Peninsula, there are still Muslim, uh, Islamic, you know, in the south of Spain, there still are some uh, Muslims there. But essentially, they reconquest by the year 1250 or so, the Christians are in control. And things take a sharp turn for the worse. Um, they institute all sorts of laws deliberately designed to cause mass, mass conversion, um, riots, massacres. And beginning in the year 1250, and if you recall, Ramban, who we've talked about, Ramban also ends up leaving Rabbi Moshe Nachmanides. He leaves Spain in the, in the late 1200s. If you recall, we've talked in, in several classes about the great disputation of Ramban. Right? That's with a bunch of Dominican friars. No longer with Muslims, that's with the Catholic Church. So already Ramban is contending with, with the Christian world. And they continue to institute laws, decrees that make Jewish life virtually impossible. You know, we talk about the expulsion, the Inquisition as 1492 is like that's the, you know, when the the important date. And the reality is, is that Jewish life in Spain uh, really comes to an end in the year 1391, 100 years earlier. Rabbi Beryl Wein, one of the great Jewish historians, he writes, Jewish Spain died in the year 1391. Its burial was in the year 1492. But Spanish Jew- Judaism was dead in the year 1391. Terrible decrees, massacres. It's hard to know. The statistics are impossible back then. They say, some say 40,000 Jews are killed in different riots. Now keep in mind, the number 40,000 Jews, when we talk about in terms of the Holocaust, 40,000 Jews, oh, that's nothing, that's a rounding error when we talk about the holocaust but back then you know Judaism is significantly smaller number 1 number 2 without getting too gruesome you know you didn't have the clean and neat mechanical butchery of you know gas chambers you had to kill people with by the sword it's a lot slower of a process and far more horror, horrendous and gruesome and it was just a terrible terrible situation Beginning in 1391, truly a few years earlier, but 1391 is just the year that really stands out. When you have this terrible persecution of the Jews, many Jews find themselves caught. You know, if they remain openly Jewish, they're going to get persecuted, killed, massacred. You know, what's our way out? Many, many, many Jews decide to convert to Christianity. Not so much because they believe in the legitimacy of Christianity, but rather because they want to save themselves and their families. Some argue it's the majority of Jews, the hundreds of thousands of Jews convert beginning the year 1391 for the next century. As a matter of fact, many rabbis, many of the prominent leaders are part of this conversion. One fellow who was a significant leader, I believe his name was Shmuel, he would be part of the, the Jews who would they were called the Anusim or the Conversos, these Jews who would go ahead and convert to Christianity. Shmuel, his name was Shmuel, his last name was a Barbanel. He would be the grandfather of Rabbi Don Isaac Abarbanel, converted to Christianity. Not because he loved Christianity, but you know, because of the fear of the sword. Now, the Jews converting to Christianity, it backfired because these Jews were not particularly interested in Christianity. They were not particularly devout or pious. And this deeply frustrated the Christian leaders, the Galax, the priests. And they instituted, in 1473, two major turning points happened. Number one, two people come to power, Ferdinand and Isabella, who you've probably heard of, Christa- of Christopher Columbus fame, but also they are, they, are the, um, they are the antagonists of our story. They are the, the kings and, king and queen of Spain. And as you mentioned in the beginning, really, the king and queen, they're irrelevant. But this is one of those episodes in, in European history where they try to consolidate power over the local governors. And part of their consolidation of power, the way they want to show their power, is they want to show how how righteous and pious they are to Christianity. And they, after receiving permission from the Pope, institute an inquisition. You've probably heard of the Spanish Inquisition. What was the Spanish Inquisition? The Spanish Inquisition, that's important to understand, did not affect the Jews. The Spanish Inquisition, as all inquisitions, did not interrogate People who were not Christian, the Inquisition in Spain and other countries. The role of the Inquisition was to determine if there was heresy within, internally inside of the Christian community, and they would go ahead and set trials, um, secretive trials. You were, you know, accused. You didn't know who your accuser was. Rabbi Wein points out, and Rabbi Berowein points out, it's classic. The KPB used to do this. You get a knock on the door from the, you know, the secret service. And you'd be arrested. And they would ask you, do you know why you're being arrested? It's interesting that this, the KGB would take that, the same idea. They got it from the, the Inquisition. It's just like manipulation, into, you know, um, intimidation, fear. And they would set up these Inquisitions where you would go ahead. You'd be put on trial for your heresies. Who fell under the auspices of this Inquisition? Well, the 100,000 or so Jews who over the last 100 years had converted to Christianity, well, they had been living as crypto-Jews. They hadn't been terribly religious in terms of Christianity. They had not forsaken their Judaism. They were the ones who were put on trial. And they were the ones who who would be killed. You know, 90-something percent of, you know, up to the year 1492, of the people who were under the Spanish Inquisition were all these crypto-Jews. And that became that, when people talk about the Spanish Inquisition, it was the Jews who had converted to Christianity, but who weren't from enough. They weren't living a Christian life in terms of their religion and piety. Those were the ones who were subject to the Inquisition. Rabbi, at the same time, weren't they going after the Crusaders and, and, and other pope-appointed? These were a few hundred years earlier. During this time, uh, the Inquisition was really targeted towards the Jews who had converted, supposedly converted. In 1483, you know, the real antagonist of our story, Thomas Turkomata, he becomes the head, the inquisitor general. He was a real Russia, a real villain. He's the Haman of our story. And with his, you know, insanity, really persecuted the Jews. And they realized in in the late 1480s that, you know, the Jewish problem wasn't going away. And it was Turkomata who really implores Isabella, and Ferdinand to issue the notorious um, the Alhambra Decree, right? That's what it was called. I can never remember. The Alhambra Decree where the Jews were forced, all the Jews who hadn't converted, who wanted to remain Jews, would be expelled from the Iberian, from Spain by August 1st, 1492. And that was the great, the terrible expulsion from Spain. We know Rabbi Don Isaac Barbanel, who was actually, interestingly, he was, the, he was actually in Portugal. But when you know, the King of Portugal tried to consolidate his power, you know, he wanted to, again, kill the local governors, and one of them was actually Rabbi Abarbanel. Abarbanel had to flee for his life to Spain, and it's in Spain he becomes the finance minister under Ferdinand and Isabella. He had been the finance minister in Portugal. He ends up becoming the finance minister in Spain to fi- help finance the wars. The Christians, again, were trying to drive out remnants of the remnants of the, of the Muslims in southern Spain, and war costs a lot of money, and they needed a finance minister. So they hired Rabbi Barbanel to be the, uh, the finance minister. When they issued the decree of expulsion to kick out all the remaining Jews in 1492, they realized it's not going to work, and they offered him an exception. You know, they let him stay. And he said, thank you, but no thank you, I'm going with, with the rest of my you know, my brethren. Rabbi Barbanel argues that there were a quarter of a million Jews that were expelled from Spain. Other scholars have the number at 800,000. It's really difficult to know. And on August 1st, 1492, the Jews are expelled from Spain. Now, I want to just talk about what that, what that means, and we'll try to wrap it up in a moment. This is not like if I were to tell you guys, you all need to move to Canada, okay? Get your passports, you know, whatever, get your vaccines. I know Canada's a little tricky these days, but you're all going to move to Canada, right? That would be annoying. But our lives would continue. You know, move to Canada, buy a house. The, there was nowhere to go. The Jews were kicked out. Where are you going? Travel then was impossible. They, had no, they weren't allowed to take virtually any of their money, any of their possessions. They were kicked out of Spain. You know, tens of thousands died on the boats. They were going to nowhere. They were abused, taken advantage of by the captains of the ships. Where did they go? Nowhere. Many of the Jews went to Portugal only to be kicked out of Portugal a couple of years later. Right. Eventually, they would settle primarily along the Mediterranean Basin. Many of the Jews would go ahead and wander to the Netherlands, Denmark, and eventually find their way, you know, farther. Many of the Jews would actually end up in Recife, Brazil. In the year 1654, a small pocket of those Jews would end up going to New Amsterdam, better known as New York. The first Jewish settlers, right? The first Jewish shul, the first Jewish um, synagogue in the United States of America, was not the Toro Synagogue. Wrong. Well, in the United States. Everyone says, the, well, they were in the Spanish, yes, in the West Indies. Those were all Spanish-Portuguese Jews. Right? The first Jewish synagogue in the United States was not Taurus and That's the oldest building. The oldest, con- the first congregation was Sherith Israel. Sherith Israel in New York, which still exists. Sherith Israel, Rabbi Salvatrix Shul. Right? It's the Spanish-Portuguese synagogue. These were all, these were, again, about a century and a half after the garages fired. But these were all remnants of the garish part of the, of the Spanish expulsion. It was a destruction of Spanish Jewry. You have to keep in mind, during the, the Golden Age of Spain, Spanish Jewry was the fulcrum. We talk about Sephardim and Ashkenazim. You have to recognize the Ashkenazim were 20% of the size of Sephardic Jew, Jewry during Sephardic Jewry's heyday. They were a fraction of the size, both in terms of scholarship and in terms of sheer numbers. Ashkenazic Jewry was a fraction of Spartic Jewry. It was decimated and destroyed in 1492. They would be scattered along the Mediterranean Basin, and that's why typically we think of any Jew who comes from any land of Islamic origin. So if you're from a Syrian Jew, a Persian Jew, a Moroccan Jew, we just call you Sparty, Right? It's actually incorrect. It's probably a, a little bit of a pejorative, I, I think. I mean, it's been accepted now. It's incorrect. You're a Moroccan Jew. You're a Tunisian Jew. You're a Syrian Jew. What happened is the great diaspora from the Spanish exile really dominated these communities and these communities ended up taking on the customs, traditions, and life of Spanish Jewry. And that's why we call Jews from Iran, from Iran Spartan. They're not Spartan. They've been in Iran for the last 2,000 years. But because they really ended up you know, absorbing much of the Spanish diaspora, they took on those traditions. Ashkenazic Jewry, many Ashkenazic communities took on, eventually, over the decades and centuries, would take on Spartac Jews, if you recall. One of the great leaders, or a real great influence in the 1800s, is Rabbi Chiyo Michal Levy Epstein, the author of the Arach Ar- Hashulchan, and then the, his son, the, the, the Makar Baruch, he writes the, the Torah Tamima, These are, uh, you know, standard works of of, uh, of Torah jurisprudence and insight. And Rabbi Baruch Halevi Epstein, the, in, writing in the his autobiography in the in the Makar Barach. he writes he has a, his name is Epstein. Where did he get the name Epstein from? He says, because you should know we have a tradition in our family. Our family are part of the exile of Spain. And when they were kicked out of Spain for the next couple of decades, they bounced around and they landed where? In the German port city of Epstein. And that's how he took on the name. And he says, that you should know if you are a Levy, which Rabbi Yechiel Michel Halevi Epstein, if you're a Levy and your last name is Epstein, you should know you're Spanish. You're part of the Spanish. Now, He is as Ashkenazic as Ashkenazic Jewry comes. Because over the centuries, they just kind of Ashkenized, as was typically the, that, <laughs> that was just the reality. It's a very interesting thing. When Spanish, when, when Spanish Jews would end up in Ashkenazic communities, they were always Ashkenized. It did happen to the, the opposite a little bit. Have you ever heard of it, it's a bit interesting because it's an aside. have you ever heard of it? it's a very common last name. Have you ever noticed a common Spartac last name is Ashkenazi? You ever heard that? Yeah. Isn't that the weirdest thing? Yeah. Yeah. Right? What's, what's, the, what's the origin of that name? So I'll give you an example. The Arizal, the great Arizal, he was known as Ashkenazi. He lived in a Spartac play. He lived in, in spot, in and Ash- it was dominated by the Rabbi Yosef Kairos and the Spartacs of the world. Why was his last name Ashkenazi? Because he was originally from, from, he was actually from Krakow. His family was from Krakow. They were the Ashkenazis and they moved to a Sephardic town. And all the Sephardim say, oh, that's Rabbi Yitzchak, the Ashkenazi. And it's stuck. And if you ever see someone whose last name was a Sephardi, he was an Ashkenazi. That means at some point they were from Ashkenazic origin, landed in a Sephardic community and they would call him, hey, there's Bob the Ashkenazi and his name just stuck. He's Bob Ashkenazi. And that, and that was it. So some of the Jews... Ended up finding you know, places to live, as we mentioned. Netherlands, other Islam, typically in, uh, under Islamic countries. Greece was a popular place. Um, Salonika, which was destroyed by the Germans, but it was a thriving community. But what happened to the Jews that remained? What happened to the Jews? Many of the Jews decided to convert. They were called conversos. Well, they were subject to the Inquisition. The Inquisition didn't go away till 1808. The Inquisition state, actually, in theory, it still does exist under the Catholic Church. It's just called something else. They still have the Catholic Church, still has some diocese or something that's in charge of overseeing heresy amongst Catholics. Now, again, they don't burn people at the auto de fe publicly, but it still, to some form, still exists. The last Jew was tried in 1808, I believe, in Spain. What happened to them? So they, you may have heard they're called Moranos. Morano means what is a Morano? Secret Jew. A secret Jew. What is the literal translation of the word Morano? Pig. It was a, it was a, a swine. It was a derogatory term to these crypto Jews. What happened to all of them? Yeah, well, a lot of them. Some of them ended up in the United States and places like Me- well, North America, Mexico, and then South. So those were the Jews primarily who left Spain. Those were, the plain, those were the Jews who left Spain, would end up bouncing around, and as you say, I would make it to North America. But the Jews who actually converted. What happened to them? So if you go ahead and you do a DNA study in Spain today, you will find that like, I don't know, 50% of Spain has Jewish blood in them. Why? Because Spanish Jewry ended. They eventually, they were crypto-Jews for a generation. And they would go into their basement and light their Shabbos candles and eat kosher and keep Pesach. And that worked for a generation. Maybe for two generations. Maybe for three generations. By the fourth generation, done. You know why? Because Judaism requires communal life. You cannot live as a functional Jew on an island. It's impossible. History shows it time and time again. Judaism requires communal participation. Judaism requires infrastructure. It requires shoals. It requires yeshivas. It requires kolels. It requires infrastructure. You need friends. You need a community. Judaism does not live on an island. It's impossible. And they all intermarried, they all assimilated, and they are gone to to, to world history. I was actually, you know, you'll see commonly, people that are from Spanish origin, they say, I have a tradition in my family, we have no idea why. But for some reason, on Friday nights, my grandma would go to the basement and light candles. Right? What was, because they used to light Friday night Shabbos candles in the basement so no one would see. But, again, some of the behaviors may be stuck, but the religion, the, the ideology, the culture, the values... The beauty of Torah was gone. We'll end just with one last idea. Rabbi Don Isaac of Barbonell, as we mentioned, was the great hero. He really, his life began in Portugal, and he rose to prominence. And then he had to flee for his life. Penniless, and he was wealthy, successful. And he had to run for his life. He comes to Spain, he rebuilds, and again, he rises to prominence, success. He was offered to stay. But he said, no, I'm out. <clears throat> he leaves. He goes to France. He goes to, I think, Tuscany. I, I don't remember where. And the local provincial governor there, he also needs a secretary of treasury, hires Rabbi Abarbanel again, becomes incredibly successful again. For a third time, he rebuilds his life. And again, he has to run for his life. A third time, he wanders from place to place. He ends up... Settling, living in Italy, where he dies and is buried. Rabbi Don Isaac of Barbonell is a hero. Rabbi Don Isaac of Barbonell was prolific. His commentary on the Torah is a classic, an absolute classic masterpiece. We've studied it in the past. It's just, it's, it's brilliant. It's relevant. It's timely. He wrote it 500 years ago. He's speaking to us today. The amount of other works, he wrote a work on the Haggadah, he wrote a work um, um, on the the Rambam's 13 Principles of Faith. He was prolific in his writing. What he gave up to ensure the continuity of Jewish survival, three times he gave up everything to help the continuation of Judaism flourish and survive, to ensure that the Torah would continue to the next generation. It's a story of Messiah Asnafash, a story of tremendous, tremendous sacrifice, personal dedication during just the most turbulent and unimaginable of, of times. You know, it's really a story. We believe, Kilosi, Shokachmi, Pizarro, you know, Turkamadas can come and go, the Almohads can come and go. You know, we've faced foe after foe. Judaism is not going anywhere. But it requires mesir as Nefesh. It requires dedication, it requires commitment, and it requires sacrifice. Thank God we live in relative comfort in the United States of America, and we should hope and pray that it continues that way. But a little bit, one of the things that maybe we have to ask ourselves is during our, you know, with all our comfort and prosperity here, do we still have that mesir as Nefesh, that dedication that Rabbi Barbanel had? Were we willing to give up everything for the continuity of the Jewish people? Thank you all for coming. Thank you for paying attention. If anyone has any questions, I'm here to stick around, but please help yourself to more food and more importantly, to more coffee. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Jewish History Podcast. As always, we'd really appreciate if you like and share this podcast or even better, leave a comment. For more information, please visit us at